According to Britannica, a musical composition is the art of conceiving and creating music. I love to sing, and I very much enjoy listening to music. That part I get. But to compose music, to pick out the notes, the instruments, I'm completely at a loss. Fortunately, we have three women composers with us today who will explain what it means to be a female composer in today's music world. I'm Rebecca McCain with my partner Alan Winson, and we are Bar Crawl Radio Podcast, recording at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street, across the street from the mortuary and four miles from the statue erected to celebrate the work of a male composer, Antonin Dvorak. I could not find a monument in New York City that celebrates female composers. Not fair. Let's play catch up and honor the woman composer. And with that bit of an intro, here we go. Today we'll be talking with Sviatlana Bukovic, best known for her blending of classical music, media, and electronic music. Sarajevo-born and New York City-based, Sviatlana is widely regarded as an innovative, dynamic, multimedia American composer. Her music has been heard at the Kennedy Center, the Tribeca Film Festival, Brooklyn's Barge Music, Rose Studio at Lincoln Center, and many other venues. Ms. Bukovic is a board member of the Electronic Music Foundation Institute and a tenured assistant professor at City University of New York. Beth Anderson Harold is a composer of new romantic music, text sound works, and music theater events. Her early work was considered post-Cajun and non-academic. Beth studied with John Cage, Terry Riley, Robert Ashley, and Larry Austin at Mills College and UC Davis. Gramophone described Deborah Kay as, quote, an eclectic unfolding of creativity. Deborah has won six global music awards and received grants from Mann's College, Meet the Composer, and Edward T. Cohn Foundation, and commissions from the Howland Chamber Music Circle and Portland Youth Philharmonic. Ms. Kay's works have premiered at Carnegie Hall Wiles Recital Hall in collaboration with the Lincoln Trio and Daedalus Quartet. Welcome, Deborah, Beth, and Svetlana. Alan and I first heard about Deborah Kay's work at a composer's Concordance Jazz Influence Strings concert a few months ago. And this BCR program started with a cut from the concert of Deborah's. It's called It Rained for 17 Days. Uh, that night's music inspired me to learn more about women composers. And today, we have this opportunity to talk about the work of three most talented women composers. So uh, what was the impulse to begin composing music? Well, that's easy. I was sitting this around Beth, the house. This is Beth Anderson. <laughs> I was sitting around the house as a child playing piano, and I got tired of practicing. So <laughs> I started writing things down, and I took them to my teacher, who said, no, don't do that. Practice. <laughs> and it kept on like that for a lot of years, with people saying, no, keep practicing. Don't write. <laughs> you know? But anyway, I was a stubborn child. Okay. Why, do you think, why do you think they did that? Why did they say, don't, don't write? Well, 
At the University of Kentucky, where I started school, their opinion was that uh, nobody should be a composer if they couldn't take oral dictation on Schoenberg and get it right the first time. In other words... That sounds limiting. Very limiting. I said nobody. But <laughs> they were not encouraging. They just... I don't know. Maybe they thought you can't make a living, which is certainly accurate. But <laughs> Anyone else? Svetlana? Well, similarly to Beth, I was playing piano at a young age and um, was practicing. And practicing wasn't as big of a problem as the fact that I was hearing sounds as I was doing that and imagining other scenarios within what I was doing. And so I started, I would call it improvisation at the time, kind of riffing off of what I was playing. And... Um, Later on, at 14 and 15, I was curious about how to write this stuff down, and I did start doing that because at that point, I had already had some years in, in the music school as well as in the elementary school. At 14, I was also interested in um, you know, the modern vernacular of rock and pop and progressive rock and everything that was surrounding me through my older sister, and so I... Uh, was invested in learning more about keyboards so that I could potentially one day be, be in a band or, you know, mm -hmm. do, do that kind of work. So What about you, Deborah? I think, in a way, I came to composing a little later. I did dabble early on, but was never encouraged, like through piano lessons. I, I wrote down the best I could, some kind of through-composed thing, and they said, no, that's not a song, that's not a... You know, that was pretty early. And then, um, you know, later in accompanying for choruses or whatever in high school, you know, I wasn't that good of a reader, so I would kind of just make up and try to be in the right place at the right time, and that wasn't encouraged, certainly in that setting. I think that being female was a deterrent in a way. One, there wasn't a lot of good early education musically other than piano lessons, so if you were a girl, you were going to take piano lessons not uh, there wasn't even theory class I didn't have that till I was 16 so music was always part of my life um, and I had good exposure to listening to music early on but I was a piano major in college and started composing after college really um, you know I had the interest maybe the creative expression was the first thing and it could have come through writing or through music and in the end I chose music and you're still kind of writing, aren't you? I still write. I mean, I yeah. have, you know, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, words and There's, thoughts. Right, exactly. Yes. Where does the inspiration come from for a piece? Is it something that you've read that, you, that makes you think of some musicality? Is it um, like a painting? Is it, or is it the weather? <laughs> is it, yeah. Or yeah. the weather or Spend not. <laughs> well, um, I'm very context-based, and I'm primarily interested in sound, and I guess that's why I combine electronic sounds and acoustic sounds in my work to this day. And so if I have a nucleus of sound that interests me and I think that it possesses a right trajectory and even a micro-narrative in a way, then if I'm hot about it, I will then go and expand that. And I go between, you know, subconscious and conscious in writing. I would. Uh, expand that micro world but then put on my editorial hat it is always from something very musical and small that I start out 
It, it, does it have to come from music itself, or it can come from just the world, like a horn beating, beeping, or something? Well, that is music now. It is music, and then if I have a narrative of my own, um, that could come from, you know, a novel, perhaps. Like mm. in some of my pieces, I do citations from uh, books, but. Um, Sound is is what propels the piece, not the word narrative. What about you, Deborah? Um, inspiration for my music. Sometimes it comes from wanting to get something off my chest, you know, uh, or work my way out of a, a life situation or problem to something better, or an assignment I'm giving th- through a commission, or or things in the world. Um, like it rained for 17 days was my response, my blues song for climate change. Right, right. Um, you know, it could come from various or from reading something like with the encountering Lorca. Um, Which we will listen to a little bit later. Yes, and, and yes, through sound, through splashing around and trying things intuitively and then choosing what I want to develop, what has the most meaning for me. What about you, Beth? What's your inspiration? Well, songs are the easiest because there's the words. You've got to get to the end. <laughs> uh, but I also write for players, particular players. If, if I know I'm going to write for saxophone, I have a different kind of feeling about what I think about saxophones as opposed to string quartet or something. So is it a particular player that you're writing yes. for or an instrument? It's usually a particular player. Person. I, I need input. I need request. You don't have to pay me, but you do have to ask for it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, I, I worked with a flute player, the same flute player for since forever. And Andrew used Bolotovsky often asked me for something. And he used to be in a quartet, so I wrote a quartet that had a flute, and then a trio with a flute, and lots and lots of flute solos. And lately he did a series of variations that I wrote for him. And I just keep making more and more for whoever is talking to me. So I just would like to ask you ladies if you could talk briefly about your process. Um, My process is like a slowed down improvisation. So I'll often go away and come back, you know, and see how I feel about, you know, what I did before or what, how it should proceed. Um, And then I come through and I'm kind of fast and loose and a little chaotic in the first part and then I come through and refine and I'm very detail-oriented. Yes, Svetlana? Well, I I think I touched upon it a little bit already. Um, In my process, the role of the producer comes in as well as everything else. In my consideration for sound, after I had laid down something, um, either in notation or as a recording, um, then the producer says, okay, (laughs) how do we um, chisel this so that it um, communicates the musical ideas the best through the best sound I can give it. Right. I just used a sculpture uh, term, that you chisel it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting, interesting. I'm more of a seamstress. Okay. <laughs> right. I, well, since 1984, I've been writing swales, and swales are sort of like a crazy quilt um, when I do them. And they're a collage of uh, a lot of different little things that I write, usually 
they're all new little pieces of material. And I put them together in different ways and a different in 1984, I made different kinds of swales than I do now. I go through periods where I'm cutting everything up really little, or I'm having big swaths of something, or I'm just alternating a, a whole lot of things in C with a whole lot of things in F. <laughs> For some, you know, you can create harmonic movement by just moving globs of things mm -hmm. around. Do, do, do you find it, just to me, do you find that there are times when you're in love with certain keys mm -hmm. as opposed to others? Well, I certainly used to be in love with Mixolydian. <laughs> I have no idea what that is. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pure scale uh, from G to G on the white keys on the piano. A mode. Gold modes. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. Okay. So we're going to listen to a couple of pieces by Beth Anderson. The first one was chosen by Svetlana. February Swale. Svetlana, why did you choose, before we start play the music, why did you choose February Swale by Beth Anderson for us to listen to? In a lot of Beth's music, I find strong concepts behind um, what appears a simple arc. And uh, when I was listening to February Swale, at a point I said, hmm, this should finish. And that's perhaps what we do think in February, that mm -hmm. winter should finish. But then, I noticed that that phrase went on for a while longer, and then something magical would happen. Mm. And I equated that with a beautiful snowstorm, as Beth mentioned in her notes, or um, just a trickle of flurries, um, or an imaginative arc in our own minds. So I, as I contemplated that piece, I thought, this is more about our own inner workings of how we feel in February than what actually happens in February, mm. as is life. And I really love that concept. And in a lot of Beth's work, I find um, uh, 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 a touch of the avant-garde in how she uh, manages to um, say something simple with complex concepts behind that. Mm. Let's listen to an excerpt of Beth Anderson's February Swale, performed by Cantalibre in 2013.
you talked about you talked about um, a quilt. Is it something you visualize? I'm yeah. not at all visual. <laughs> okay. Uh, it, it's duration and uh, just little sounds. Uh, the uh, harp is the snowflakes, and the harp player complained that I didn't use the whole body of the harp, but I just wanted the snowflakes. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Did you, do you, each season feels different, the swales. Oh, I have 12 of them. Right. I, the new one is coming up and uh, just going to premiere December 3rd, December Swale. Do we understand what you feel about February when we listen to this well, music? Well, one assumes that you have your own point of view because February in Kentucky, where I grew up, is cold and boring and Half the time you can't even drive on the roads because there's no equipment to clean anything. <laughs> but if you're in Argentina, I think you have a different experience of February. <laughs> That's true. All right, so we're going to listen to another piece by Beth Anderson. This is one that I chose, Swimmers on the Shore. Uh, your music and lyrics touch my heart. Uh, I un and uh, the way I understand the story is that a woman is losing her father, but not only to old age, but to dementia. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the piece before we play it? David Mason wrote the poem, and I don't know if this is part of his life story. I think it's his father. Uh, I didn't choose it. It was an assignment, a commission from the Westchester Poetry Festival. and. Uh, the kinds of poems that I choose on my own are not like this. So it was, it was when, I, when they sent it to me, I, I gasped because this was so heartfelt and so painful, really. And, but I tried to make it kind of uh, lively. <laughs> it's beautiful. I was really quite taken with it. And now an excerpt from Beth Anderson's Swimmers on the Shore, words by David Mason, sung by tenor Mitch Rafferty, Mrs. Anderson, on the piano. Like half a filial circus act, splashing the white pool shallow end, I swam about my father who could stand And when I climbed an acrobat Diving from his muscled shoulders They seemed as solid as two Talking never came 
It is as if my father's memories dissolve in a sea darkened pool while I no longer am aware which of us goes fishing there Has he begun the You, you, you're having an emotional response to it. Oh, it, it, it makes me, it's painful. I've had friends that had this, and he makes it so real for you. Thank you very much, Beth Anderson, for sharing your work with us. We don't have the time to play the entirety of each of these pieces, uh, but for all our listeners, you can find all of these pieces that we're playing on YouTube. I'd like to turn now to a piece by Deborah Kay. This one was chosen by Beth, and it's called Dialogues with the Distant Mountains. First, Beth. <laughs> Why did you choose this piece of Deborah's? Well, I just heard it the other night at the uh, New York Women Composers Gala, and uh, it was so beautiful. It was just a lovely, lovely piece. I didn't realize it was really from 87, but she says revised in 06, so to me that's yesterday afternoon. I know for some people that's long ago, but <laughs> it's a really beautiful piece, and it was played so well by Javier Orvieta, who is a beautiful saxophone player. And in fact, the piece that uh, the cut is going to be with Javier Orvieta yes. uh, and Marcia Eckert, I guess on the Marcia. Yes. Marcia on, on, yes. on the piano. Um, before we play it, Deborah, why don't you tell us a little bit about this piece um, called Dialogues with the Distant Mountains? So this is actually, uh, the 1987 version was my first ever instrumental piece. And I felt that it, it, I wrote it for me to play with a saxophonist or, or just I had piano versions. And it was always a little semi-improvised because you know, I was playing the piano, I didn't have to write it out completely. And then, it, as time went on, I remembered it as something that I wanted to bring to better form, and I expanded it. It seemed like something important for me to express. It's kind of my coming-of-age tale, and so I wanted to you know, bring it to fruition. Let's listen to a bit of uh, Dialogues with the Distant Mountains by Deborah Kay. Thank you. 
always feel it's a bit of a sin to uh, <laughs> stop a piece midpoint. It's, uh, it's, it's killing the moment. Um, but again, if you want to hear uh, dialogues with Distant Mountains by Deborah Kay, uh, played by Javier Oviedo and Marsha Eckert, uh, you can get it on YouTube. It's, it's, yes, it's, it's, or it's SoundCloud, there. yes. Or SoundCloud, it's there available. Deborah, you seem to be inspired by nature. I don't know if this is true. Landscape, weather, rain. <laughs> um, is, this, is, is this a particular mountain? No. I was actually living in the mountains of Northern California, near the Oregon border in pristine lands at that time, my kind of mountain dream for like four years. And in order to... Uh, see if it had the ring of truth. I would look to the distant mountains if it, to see if it seemed true. Hmm. So that was... <laughs> Can you describe in words what the mountains would say to you if it's true or uh, well, if it's false? Well, I guess it was a form of yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, or if it, it resonated to me. I, I know it's kind of crazy, but, you know, I didn't have a full compositional training. I kind of... So I had to have some way to know, to verify, I guess it's an intuitive thing, but if nature, which is so perfect in its way, if I could look at something beautiful and have it, have it say, yes, this, this, makes sense, this is, has some integrity to it, then I don't, it's where I was then. I don't do that anymore. I mean, I haven't done it in it a long time. It makes perfect sense to me. Everything oh, is connected. Everything is connected. <laughs> and, be, and I believe that, yeah, nature does speak to us. Absolutely. Right. I'm a nature yeah. lover. I am for sure. And it's, uh, it's the problem of talking about art. Right. Because art is in the listening, the watching, the doing. Yes. The, it's not in the talking about it. Right. It's right. different in, for everyone. Right. Yes. So we're going to uh, listen to one more piece by Deborah Kay. Uh, this is called String Quartet Number One, Encountering Lorca. This is chosen by Svetlana for us for us to play. So again, I'm going to start with Svetlana. Why did you choose Encountering Lorca? I chose this piece because of um, the way it had an effect on my psyche. It had a kind of freshness and assuredness at the same time. Um, it was um, rich in harmony and surprising, short, three minutes and some change. And it was infused with light and surprises and twists and turns, all in a very short uh, amount of time, however, completely formed. And when I, um, I, I liked the whole quartet, by the way, this is just the first section of it. And when I read um, Deborah's notes about it, I, I found out that it has to do with the Mediterranean and the work of Lorca, the poet. And um, it rang true because it was an honest fascination, I thought, through Deborah's eyes uh, with the sun of the Mediterranean, the twisty streets, that everything is small and yet very expansive in how people appreciate time, the passage of time there. And so this little gem just spoke of all those things and it was very um, true to my own imagination if I had encountered Lorca for the first time as, a, as an American, what that would, and the Mediterranean coast, and mm -hmm. subsequently I, I read that Deborah went there and experienced it for the first time. What would that be like for me and this piece captured it and I just loved how that worked. Amazing, amazing. Uh, this is Deborah Cage String Quartet number one, 
encountering Lorca. Okay, okay. Um, that's um, qu String Quartet Number 1, Encountering Lorca by Deborah Kay. I, uh, when I was an actor, I played in a Lorca play, the lead, Blood Wedding, <laughs> and that kind of gets it. Okay. It's like crazy, and it's hot, and it's heated, and it's kind of a sexual thing to it, too. So you talk about it. Hmm. <laughs> well... I was remembering the Mediterranean. I was actually sitting in, uh, on vacation at a lake in Vermont at the time, which was reminded me also of it. And that whole feeling, as Svetlana spoke so well, of the, the feeling of the, the relaxation and the European lifestyle. It came a bit out of practicality in a way. Composers Concordance said, do you have anything about Spain for our concert? So, and I happened to have been reading Lorca at the time. And, uh, you know, I love the breadth of his dark and light moods. And also the fact that he, um, themes and, and certain phrases and images appear throughout the body of his work repeatedly, you know, in different contexts. And that was so musical to me in a way, how a theme can you know, transform itself in different movements of a piece or also in the body of one's work. We tend to have themes. So that was kind of a fascination. Yes, I wanted to capture the moods. Right, right, right. Um, again, quite, quite, quite lovely. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for sharing that. You're listening to Bar Crawl Radio Podcast. Recorded on the porch of Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street on the Upper West Side. We're speaking with women composers Svetlana Bukovic, Beth Anderson, and Deborah Kay. And we'll be right back. Let's turn now to our third composer and listen to a piece by Svetlana Bukovic. Once You Are Not a Stranger was chosen by Beth Anderson. But let's start with the composer, Svetlana. Can you tell us about the piece and what we should listen for? Well, the piece uh, was premiered at another Composer's Concordance concert. Yay, Composer's Concordance, Gene yeah. Pritzker. Yeah. Yeah. And Dan Cooper. Dan Cooper, exactly. Yeah. And that was an opportunity for me to write for Ethel. And Ethel is a string quartet, a contemporary string quartet that I particularly like and was excited about the opportunity. And at the time, um, the elections were going on and um, was anticipating... You're talking about the presidential election. Yes, thank you. That uh, one, okay. That was 2016. 
-hmm. And uh, anticipating the results, I started writing the piece, and then Trump won, and then it all made sense because the piece I was writing was this quietly illuminated place in the future where I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. So if I had to stand the reality I was in, I was also going to have a place that I fully control where um, I feel good. So the piece evolved around four tracks of electric bass guitar evolving slowly along the lines of um, the strings. Thank you. Once You Are Not a Stranger by Svetlana Bukvich. I, I, the, the whole Trump story, it's like it, it makes sense. It's like you want to get away from that madness. Mm -hmm. And we can go to this, this place, which is beautiful. Right. It was like a collective hug, I think. I, was, yeah. I oh, thought I was wow. making at the time. Mm. Wow. It feels like that. It, it seems so hopeful. So, so it, I, feel, I hear tenuous questioning. Mm. Beth Anderson, why did you choose this piece? Well, it's full of luscious strings, and I love strings. <laughs> Um, and it has this wonderful atmosphere under it, and as you say, it's very optimistic, and it, it has the sense of being someplace I wouldn't mind being, mm -hmm. for sure. <laughs> Flowers and baby sheep, you know, <laughs> happy. I just thought it was a lovely piece. And it is gorgeous. Sirlana, this next piece is one I chose. Before and after the teke has lots of surprises. First off, what is a teke? I searched far and wide for an English word, and I found it in the end. Uh, it is a word that depicts uh, a dervish monastery. Tekia in my native tongue, which is teke. 
I love the line, and I can't choose the way without you. So beautiful. Can you tell us what drove you uh, with this music? How did the story inform the music? Thank you uh, for that quote. I feel like I've been writing this this piece for decades. Um, it is a, on a, on a, on, a, on a sound level. It is a mix of um, analog electronic sound through Moog synthesizers and an acoustic sound um, with a violin. And and these two lines are um, often in unison. And with that, I was able to blend. I guess the old world with um, the sounds of New York, and besides that, the the the, the piece finds inspiration in a novel by um, Bosnian Herzegovinian writer Mesha Selimovic. His book, The Death of the Dervish, is a well-known book over there, but is just gaining some notoriety on this side of the pond. And um, the book is a, um, a story of, uh, about. Um, existentialism, uh, you know, in a life of an of, a, of an old dervish in a teke. And I was able to actually visit uh, the um, 17th century teke um, in Herzegovina where um, the inspiration came from for the book. And it was just a very potent dose of <laughs> magic realism for me. And imagining what it would it be like if um, I expressed my um, "Quote unquote," religious muse of views musically, as I am a secular person. But having visited that teke and having um, tried to infuse um, the the world of where I came from with what I've learned here, became sort of like a new religion for me in a way. And uh, also searching for a new sound. Uh, Deborah was saying, it, "We are all mavericks in New York. We have to be able to generate." Um, different versions of pieces because of different venues, different commissions, different um, situations. And so this piece also um, saw many different uh, players and uh, variations in terms of um, how it was presented. Sometimes I, I would play the electronics live. Sometimes the um, violinist would play with tape if traveling and I couldn't be there. And so, um, but in the end, it was always a tight relation between the track and between the electronics and the um, and the instrumentalist. And there is nothing improvised in that piece. Everything is not to note, including the electronic construct, which is always the same if I perform it live. Yeah, I, if, if I can say, I, I love the electronic aspect to it. It's so layered. I mean, you, you really should listen to it with headsets on, because the the, the sound. I was going, wait, did I hear something there? And then, oh yeah, I did. Well, in, in addition to um, just blending the two sound sources and worlds, acoustic and electronic, there's also an added element to this, which is um, the alter tuning that I designed, which uh, permeates the piece here and there. And that was important to me because in, in searching for this new language, I couldn't um, just stay in the temperate system. Uh, and, and for the listeners, the temperate system is the system we have on a piano, which has uh, set distances between uh, pitches. So from C to D, we know it's supposed to sound like that. And if some somebody sings in between, oh, we say he it's or she is off key, right? <laughs> uh, but there's there's a plethora of sound in between the keys, and um, and I wanted to utilize that to form another emotional um, subtext. Let's listen to "Before and After the Teke" by Svitlana 
Bukvich. There are various versions of the piece. Which should we listen? Which, which one should we use? Well, probably the one from um, my album Evolution, where um, it's you know produced and mastered and ready to go. And now before and after the Teke by Svetlana Bukvich. Without you, the distant foreign lands hurt more. And the empty roads. And the strange dreams that I have even when I'm awake. Chase away without you. According to a recent NPR report on female composers, the story of women composers throughout the centuries is fraught with prejudice, patriarchy, and exclusion. At one time, the only women allowed in a symphony orchestra were harpists. Have you found it difficult to break into this male-dominated world of music? I think it's hard for everybody, but I, you know, I, I do think that it's a special hell. <laughs> <laughs> for most women. Do you have any examples of, of that hell? You don't have to name names. <laughs> <laughs> the New York Philharmonic has not yet commissioned me. I'm really upset. <laughs> you know, they're my hometown orchestra. Shouldn't that happen? You know. Everybody. Do they generally commission male composers? Well, they have. They In the past few years, they've been making much more of an effort, and they did a whole lot of women lately. Mm -hmm. It's very exciting. It, and it goes through periods. You know, in um, 1974, that was a big moment for a lot of women composers, and I got some performances then that I would never have gotten otherwise. And you think it's going to last forever, and then it disappears like mm. smoke. Mm. And then you wait 40 more years, <laughs> hoping. So, um, so it's, if you're it, a woman composer, you just have to live a long life. Uh. It really helps. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the lack of women composers nowadays being 
in the public eye has a lot to do with the past and the fact uh, that uh, the, the music just was not recorded or somehow noted even if it was made. And I, you know, teaching some music history, uh, attested the fact that in, in the 12th century, there were probably women composers writing, but the church wasn't interested in that, in writing it down. And because we didn't have technology other than paper, if it wasn't written down, it didn't exist for the generations to come. So we have um, very little you know, to, to look back on. Uh, nowadays, uh, women composers can record and write and, and leave traces behind. And I would use this opportunity as an invitation to women to just output more because we often hear from music critics and researchers, there just isn't enough out there. We can't listen to enough or read about um, enough or see enough scores even. And so if we change that, the presence of women music women in music will also change. What about the composers' concordians? Have they, have they helped women composers? Has that been a good you know, collaboration? It's been a wonderful collaboration for me, and I think they do their best to do that. Um, and I think generally there are more opportunities nowadays for women composers, but it kind of goes in the fashion of the times, you know, um, but at the highest levels, like the New York Phil and stuff, really, and most orchestras, it's not a 50-50 concert, it's not a 50-50 season. The only one I know who's doing that is Marvin Rosen on Classical Discoveries. You know, he has the 50-50 marathon of composers, half women, half men. But it, it's going to take a while to get to some kind of parity. I've talked to conductors who say, I, you know, I was a male conductor and I didn't, shame on me, you know, program women composers. In the world of music production nowadays, um, there is still only 4% of women in the producer's seat. Mm -hmm. And I wonder sometimes um, what it would be like if the world had um, more women signing on the dotted line, uh, as in this is the final sonic picture. Would we have even more uh, women listeners because of that? Or would we have an expanded sonic world because of that? I do hope that um, you know, something like that, uh, you know, that the future holds something like that. So other than the composers here on Gephardt's porch, uh, can each of you pick one piece of music composed by a woman with which to end this conversation? Hmm. Someone you admire and inspires you, um, and I think someone who maybe even deserves a statue? Hmm. Aside well, from the present company. Well, Pauline Oliveris is definitely the one that hasn't, in my imagination, John Cage and Pauline Oliveris sit in on either side of my uh, fireplace on the, the <laughs> where you normally put vases. <laughs> Their busts are there. And even though it doesn't show up that much in my actual aesthetic, <laughs> but they are my history, history. And uh, I loved all of Pauline's music from the 70s where she was cooking dinners and that was the composition <laughs> and, mm -hmm. um, 
dancing around snake dancing and um, making, you were invited to make sounds and listen to each other and it was a listening exercise as well as a, a beautiful composition. Mm. I met the composer Sorrel Hayes, who I believe Beth knew also, and she was a wonderful composer. I recently heard more of her music on a tribute concert that Max Lifshitz did through North-South Consonants, and uh, it was a great display of her work. not so much in the sense of music per se, but the totality of an artist who was embracing new te technologies and was innovative and really forging new paths and um, converging concepts around technology into art. And as then, it is as important today because with the technology that surrounds us now, yes, AI, we... Um, need to follow that kind of path because if we don't, if we don't insert ourselves into the newest tech, we might be faced with, oh, the corporations will be telling us how to express ourselves. And that is a very dangerous place. Oh, Superman. Oh, John. Yeah, I mean, we just want to say thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, there's obviously a lot more we can say about women composers and these three women composers. Um, and we appreciate your spending the Saturday afternoon with us. Thank you. Thank it was you. a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to not only showcase our music, but to get the three of us to know each other better. And in these contexts where we know this, we are stronger and can do more. And it has really been a wonderful experience for me. Thank you. You've been listening to Bar Carl Radio Podcast, recording at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on the Upper West Side. And we have been talking with women composers about their work. Thank you, Svetlana Bukovic, Deborah Kay, and Beth Anderson for joining us and sharing your amazing music. And thanks to Wade Ripka's Eastern Blockheads Band for our BCR Bop Bop theme. <laughs>